Hey folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and this is the show where we build an entire campaign and we do it from scratch. This season, we're building a campaign for the 5th edition of Dungeons & Dragons, and we've just started building the gameplay portion of the campaign itself. And by just started, I mean... Two weeks ago, we built out the getting to know you part of things and laid out the overview of what we're going to basically set our group out to do. And I realize it's going to be a lot. And when I was editing that show two weeks ago, I realized I might have piled that on a bit heavy. I think time and space, and if I'm being honest, I think it was actually listening to myself say all of that. I realized I think I went a little overboard. So I think what we need to do is pull the stuff after the conversation between Bree and the group, the part where I said I was going to detail the particulars. I think it needs to be more vague and less specific. And I realized that needs to be for multiple reasons. The first is because I don't think Bree would have told the group about the communications between the elders and any other group. I mean, I just made comments earlier in the episode about nobody really knowing about those. And Bree just suddenly making a big deal about them there would have been a major revelation. So it doesn't seem to fit. And I think I agree with your players on this. To go where I was thinking of going last week would be way too much, way too fast. I think we can get where we want to go ultimately, but we can do it in better controlled chunks. I mean, we'll do all of those things in the long run, but we don't need to dump that much out there up front. I I still stand by the Luke Skywalker reference, but I think we need to adjust things. So let's hit that up before we get into new stuff. Bree would still speak to the group about insurrections, but it would be more vague. She would be talking about thinking that now might be the time, though she wouldn't be able to explain why she believes it. She'll also tell them about a dream she's been having again and again. It's it's still a dream about a battle, and it's still a dream about a man, a sword, and giants. This time, though, she has no idea who the man is or where he is. The sword does engulf the enemies in fire, and while that amazes her, she has no idea what the dream is or what it means. Here's the big change we're going to make, and this is where we're going to tie it into what we're going to build today. The island sits on a dormant volcano. We've said that already. And Bree knows there's an abandoned complex down there. She doesn't know who or what was once down there, but she's had visions of a once great society. She believes there may be answers to her dreams down there, and she'd like the group to go down there, explore the area, and bring back whatever they find. She will then assist them in decrypting what they find in the hopes they can make sense of her dreams and try to figure out why she's seeing what she's seeing, and what to do next, if anything. This is where, in my game, she'd bring in the half-elk warlock to help, so this is where you'd bring in those characters you'd be bringing in in that same spot. And if you hold on a second, you'll have your character discussion moment shortly. So, overall, not a huge change, but we are dialing things back a bit to make them more believable and realistic. I think it makes more sense, and I ultimately agree with those who reached out to me over the past two weeks and made that point. Like I said, when I actually heard myself saying that, I realized just how ridiculous it sounded. You see, your comments really do matter. 
All right, since it's nighttime, Bree will tell the group to get a good night's sleep and request that they meet her in the morning for breakfast. This is the spot for character discussion. So if you're looking for role play, this is another good spot. And I like to use spots like this as a spot to figure out what the mindset of the group is. It lets you know what they're thinking, what they're looking for, and where they stand on certain points and situations. And if you're really interested, you can take a few notes and keep track of things to give you ideas moving forward. If you're that kind of GM. When the morning arrives, the group should be excited, but cautiously so. Again, this is one of those things where these young adventurers are going to get a taste of adventure, but the uncertainty of what they're about to get themselves into should be making them nervous. And in the case of my group, they're heading into an unknown situation with an unknown entity. That's going to ratchet up the nerves, which would, if we were actually playing this, provide some tension and good role-playing opportunities. So again, if you've got this type of setup, you've got some really good role-playing opportunities yourself. Now, all of that being said, if you're not running for a group that's into role-playing, that's perfectly okay. Don't try to force a group that's not really into role-playing into role-playing. I've found in the past that when I've tried to do that, it goes over like a fart in a headwind. You can encourage them, you can nudge them, but at the end of the day, if they're not interested in doing it, all you can do is just keep moving along. So let's do that very thing and move along in the build. Over breakfast, Bree meets with the group to provide them with the gear they'll need for their trip. She'll provide them with 50 feet of rope, along with several heavy spikes they can use to secure the rope into the sides of the volcano to rappel down once they've climbed up. As she'll note, the climb up will be the easy part. Getting down will be the hard part. Other than the rope, she has nothing more to provide them. Once breakfast is finished, she accompanies them towards the volcano, but doesn't go much further than the edge of the tree line. Once they hit the edge, she makes it a point to give each of them a warm hug and a smile. I don't know what you'll find when you go down there, but be mindful of what you've learned and you'll do well. She'll turn to watch them walk away towards the volcano, nodding and smiling. From here, it's on the group. The base of the volcano is much like a hill. It's hard dirt with grass, really easy to climb due to it being a slight rise. In fact, it's such an easy climb, the group will probably be tempted to want to run up it. But if they're smart enough to look all the way up, they'll realize the smart move will be to conserve their energy, pace themselves, and keep a consistent pace since once they get far enough up, chances are pretty good there won't be a good spot to rest. Now, I don't have an exact height for the volcano since that's not something I see as being mission critical for the game. If you're one of those who are a stickler for details, go ahead and run a Google search for volcanoes and pick one that you feel would work well with the size of the island we're using and the amount of square footage that we have on the map and drop it in there. I'm thinking it would be something large enough that it would have been one that would have actually been responsible for the creation of the island in the first place, but has been inactive for so long, it's allowed for the island to get to the point it's at. It's large enough that climbing it is going to be a challenge for about the last third of it, and it's going to be a significant challenge to get down to the basin. So you've got a basic idea of what I'm seeing in my head. What you're seeing in your head might vary, so work accordingly. Getting back into the climb, when the group gets somewhere around the halfway point, that gradual climb starts getting a bit more severe. 
that steepness makes it harder to climb and the characters find themselves having to strain a bit more to move. And they're definitely having to slow down as they move. And those who already have a shorter movement rate are moving slower than the others, which means those who move faster will have to move even slower to make sure the group can keep together. Once they reach somewhere around a third of the way from the top, the slope becomes so bad, they're going to reach the point that they're going to have to resort to strength athletics checks with a DC of 12 in order to continue to pull themselves up. Now, there are ways to modify these checks, since there will probably be some characters who don't have great skills or strength as high ability scores. They can use the ropes they have to secure themselves together, a lot like mountain climbers do as a safety measure. And as a GM, you can choose to handle this in one of two ways. You can decide that this is a common sense thing and allow your characters to have decided to do this on their own. I mean, it really is a pretty common sense idea that people would realize that they've got ropes and they could use them to tie themselves to each other so they wouldn't get separated. That could be a perfectly reasonable idea. In that case, you can change the role to a wisdom insight role with a DC 12 to realize that the lead climber, the middle climber, and the last climber in the line need to be the strongest climbers to ensure the line doesn't fail. Otherwise, the group might have issues in figuring that out. Again, though, the group might figure this out on their own, and you can decide whether they're smart enough to do all of that without roles. Also, this leads to the second part. You can decide that these kids wouldn't be smart or experienced enough to know any of this, in which case you could decide they'd need to make two wisdom checks. The first role would be a wisdom survival role DC-12 to realize using the rope to secure themselves to each other would keep the group together and help them get the rest of the way up without being separated and hopefully keep the smaller and less powerful individuals from falling off. The second wisdom check would be the same as we set up a moment ago. Once we've got this worked up, we're back to the strength check, and with the rope trick done, we can lower the strength athletics check to DC 10, but the caveat here is that the lead, middle, and rear climbers each have to make it to avoid issues. If one of them misses then they have a hand slip and the climber above or below them has to make a check with a DC of 12 to see if they can save the climb. If they fail, then there's a slip and the climbers above and below have to make a roll with a DC of 14 to try to save and so on until either there's a make or everyone falls. If everyone falls, then the line fails. I'll explain the fall momentarily because we need to determine how often we're doing checks. There needs to be five checks because we're doing a check for every 10 feet they're doing them until they reach the crest or the top of the cauldron or whatever the proper term for the lip of the top of this thing is. So how far they fall depends on which of these rolls they miss. And you have the opportunity to allow them to save themselves a few feet if you so choose. And if you want to give them one of those dramatic flare moments, you can do so especially since they take 1d6 of damage for every 10 feet they fall, and 5d6 of damage at this level would probably kill the entire group. So there is that. I mean, if the group falls from the first climb, I probably wouldn't sweat it too much since it's only a 10-foot drop. I'd probably also not roll the d6, just have them take a point of damage and call it a few scrapes and bruises and maybe suggest they adjust their climb order or something. If they start having issues at the 20-foot level or higher, I'd consider the dramatic save. And here's how I do it. 
Give all three of the strong climbers, or four if you've got a group larger than five characters, what I call a Hail Mary strength athletics roll. It's a DC 16 roll, and it's basically them doing the flailing arm and leg thing we've seen in the mountain climbing movies, where the falling hero is doing everything they can to just try to save themselves as they're falling. Whoever makes the check, if anyone does, manages to just snag a ledge or something and saves themselves and... The rest of the group catches a bit of whiplash as the rope catches. There's also something that will help drop these climb checks if they think to use them. And those are the spikes, which are also known as piketons or peaktons or pictons. I never say those rights. If they think to pound those into the rocks as they go along and secure their ropes, they can reduce their DC by two. So if they do this from the beginning, their regular DC for the climb would be an eight which in my book is pretty darn unmissable. Once they get to the top, they'll realize that just inside the lip, there's a small ledge. So they do have a spot they could sit and rest for a moment. It's not a big spot by any means, but it is enough of a spot that they can untie themselves and sit for a moment to catch their breath, get a drink of water and figure out where they want to spike the ropes in to climb down to the basin. And they can get a decent look down to the basin thanks to the amount of time it'll have taken them to get up here without needing to drop a torch down. And this is going to take a bit of a setup to avoid too much suspending of disbelief. I mean, I I realize we're taking a lot of time to lay stuff out that may seem trivial, but I've realized after doing two seasons of this show that I've seen things one way in my head, but I haven't explained them. And folks have seen them a completely different way. And That makes the gameplay turn out completely different from what I've intended. So this season, I'm taking the extra time to make sure I lay this stuff out. If we're looking at this from an angle of timing, the group left to start this climb shortly after breakfast, which they would have eaten not too long after sunup. And if we're being honest, it took them a couple of hours at best to get all the way to the top. So let's say sunrise was around 7 a.m. Breakfast was somewhere between 30 minutes and an hour. Since we're talking about prep and eating, that means they got started around 8 a.m. Two hours to climb means they got to the top around 10 a.m. That puts the sun at a decent position to shine at around the half to three quarter point inside the volcano. And if the group went a bit slower, had a few issues getting up there or took a little longer resting, then it would be a bit closer to noon before they actually got up there, which would put the sun directly overhead which means they'd get about as much sun as they could possibly get to shine down there. And I'll grant you, it's not going to shine down there like lights in a department store, but they can get a decent idea of where they want to go. Also, they obviously wouldn't be referring to time as 8 a.m., noon, or things like that. They'd be saying morning, breakfast, midday, and such. You might have a series of terms you want to use for your game, so utilize them if they sound cool. I just wanted to put that out there. Again, let's get back to the build because we've still got a lot to build and I've taken a lot of time to get to this point. Looking down, they've got several spots that would be good spots to rappel down to, but there are two that would be better than others. One to the northeast that would require them to rappel down about 40 feet to a flat top boulder. Then they could climb down a series of rocks until they made their way to the floor. The second spot is similar to the first. It's due west, though it would require the group to rappel 35 feet to a boulder, then rappel down another 25 feet to another before they could climb down to the floor. Any other way down would require a full rappel to the floor, and for my group, 
It's around 152 up 160 feet. And no matter what else you or I determine they could see from here, and there's not a whole lot they can see from the ledge, they cannot see the entrance to the underground complex from here. So none of the other stuff we built out three weeks ago can be seen from the ledge. So don't worry about having to detail it to them until they get to the ground. So time for some discussion. And I don't think it's going to take too long for the group to make a decision. Most groups are going to take the easy way down. But since trying to predict what a group is going to actually do is about as easy as predicting the weather in the Midwest of the United States, which is where I live. Let's lay out the DCs for the various ways I've described to get down to ground level. And that should give you what you need to work out DCs of your own for other possibilities. When your group inevitably comes up with something we haven't considered since, <laughs> well, I can assure you they're going to do that because if there's an easy way, a wrong way, a hard way and a completely stupid way, well, we all know how that's going to go. We'll start with the way down that we're hoping our groups will take, which is the easiest way down. That's the 40-foot rappel down to the flat top boulder, then climb down to the floor, yada, yada. Our hope is that they do what they did to finish their way up and spike the rope from the ledge. From there, they need to make their strength athletics roll with a DC of 12 to shimmy down the rope. By the way, tying themselves together does not lower the DC. In fact, it increases the DC because, as makes sense, it increases the weight pulling down so the DC would increase to 15. So each person needs to make their check. That means someone falling will take a D6 of damage per 10 feet they fall. That means they need to make four checks for their climb down. I would also argue you could have them make a strength acrobatics check if they've got acrobatics instead of athletics since acrobatics would work in this case. So if you want to allow that, please be my guest. Once they make their four checks, they're done. They can get to the rock, then safely make their way to the floor because it's nothing at that point. The next choice takes three rolls, same as before, then two more, then to the floor, same basic ideas before. Anything else is going to be a monster set of rolls and failure is going to result in the death of a character. So if I'm running this, Look, I'm doing everything in my power to talk a player or a group that's dead set on doing this out of doing it. And I mean everything. In fact, if a group is dead set on doing this, I would actually stop the game cold and have a serious conversation with them to discuss why they want to try what is a stupid suicide tactic. If they've got easier options to try, why do they want to try the method that's so hard? At least one of them is going to probably die, if not all of them. I'm looking for serious answers. And if it's got something to do with the game itself, then we need to have a long, serious discussion about what's going on and what we need to do to make things work. If it's because they're not taking things seriously, then that's a whole other discussion and we need to work that out. Now, if it's just them not understanding the rules, then let's have that discussion. If they want to see the rules in black and white, open the player's handbook to page 183 and point out the rules on falling damage so that they understand you're not just pulling these rules out of thin air. And it isn't just me pulling these theories out of thin air. I have been in groups when this stuff has happened a time or two and GMs have literally had to pull people aside to have these conversations. Fortunately, I've never seen an entire group be this stupid. So it hasn't torpedoed an entire campaign. I'm just one of those people who likes to be ready for as many possibilities as possible, even though I know that is never possible. All right. So we are eight and a half pages of script and like 3,800 words into the show. And we're finally getting to the subterranean stuff we built, what, four weeks ago? 
Oh God, I got to get better about this. With the group finally down, they'll need to light torches to get the best look at where they are. As I mentioned, there's not a whole lot down here, and that does make sense since this was once an active volcano, even though that was a very long time ago. One thing that is a bit unnerving is the fact that the stone under the group's feet is very warm. I mean, it's not so warm that it's uncomfortable, but it's warmer than the ground they're used to walking on outside. So this should start playing on their minds a bit since, well, you know, they are inside a volcano. And looking around the rest of this thing, like I said, other than a bunch of rock, there's nothing of note. For whatever reason, there's no growth, no moss, no trees, no grass, nothing. So whatever has allowed for growth on the island itself, it has not been able to take hold in here. I mean, maybe it's the heat permeating through the stone. Maybe it's something else. Now, if one of the group members wants to and has the ability to make an intelligence nature check, let them. Don't worry about the DC because they're really not going to be able to come up with anything. You can give them some jibber jabber about heat and lack of water and yada, 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 yada. It doesn't have anything to do with actual science. And in fact, we want it to be actual garbage because this is one of those things where they're not going to have an answer. As the group scans the area, they note the enormity of the 100 foot by 100 foot entryway that had to be elaborate at one time. Now... Now it looks as plain as the volcanic stone that they can see around them. It is obvious that someone or something took the time to carve or create this giant entryway, and the group can take the time to make investigation checks if they'd like. Those would be Intelligence Investigation DC-15. Now, I'll give you some things that you can give them for successes. Don't give them all of these things, but you can give them some of them and you can choose to parcel out all of this if you've got enough characters who've made their roles. So I guess I should rephrase that to don't give any one character all of this. Parcel it out. There was a lot of metals they've never seen here before inlaid in some of these carvings. They're pretty sure one of them was silver, but they're not so sure about the other two. For the record, the others were gold and platinum, but since these characters have never seen gold or platinum, and they may have seen a silver piece once or twice, they have absolutely no clue. They can see where gems were placed in various spots around the entryway. There doesn't seem to be any sort of special method to it, as the carvings don't seem to have any sort of ceremonial meaning. The thought is that these were carvings of celebration or identification, but again, eh, who knows? There are carvings of a language the group has no clue about. They can try intelligence arcana, intelligence religion, intelligence nature, intelligence history. You can let them try any combination of skills they can come up with. They're not going to be able to figure them out because even the elders wouldn't have an idea of what these languages are. However, should a group member have parchment and quill or some other method of recording some of the carvings, they can do so so that they can research them later on. For the immense size of this entryway, it does seem odd that the double doors that are apparently used as the entrance are only 10 foot tall and 5 feet wide. It does worry them that there are huge scorch marks and what appears to be some deep claw marks of some sort on them that appear to have taken a lot of wood out of them. One of the latches also seems to be missing from one of the doors as well, so opening it shouldn't be an issue. So we've got some info for the group to absorb and to bank for future study later. It means it's time to enter the complex and get down to it. Now, last season, I would have ended the session here, but not this season. 
been running these shows short so far, so we're going to run through the first level of this complex before we end this week's build. So grab your dungeon maps off the website if you don't already have them. They're available from the website. It's badgmproductions.net. And let's start with dungeon map number one. We will start up in room number one. The darkness of the room is faintly cut by the light of your torch. As you move to take stock of your surroundings, you find small pots attached to the walls that smell of oil and soot. Moving further through the room, you can make out five 10-foot by 10-foot columns, and you note that this entry room is huge, though with torchlight, it's difficult to determine just how big it actually is. All right, so the small pots are oil pots. What kind of oil is really irrelevant? We can make them oils that they would be familiar with since that would make it easier for them to realize they could light them so as to brighten the room up, get a better idea of what they're dealing with. Let's put a couple on the southern wall, a couple on the eastern and western wall, and four on the northern wall. And let's put one on each of the columns just to try to take as many shadows out as possible. Also, moving forward, let's just remember to note that there are a couple of these pots in each room. But unless I note specifically that there aren't any, assume that there's at least one or two in each of the rooms. Hopefully, they decide to light things up. If they don't decide to just move on and open doors, then so be it. Whichever door they find, move on to that room and pick up there. For those groups that do decide to light things up and do a bit of exploring, we're going to continue on. As you light the last of the pots, your eyes take in a sight beyond anything you could ever imagine. Colors brighter than anything the island could ever produce. Metals shinier than you've ever seen. Gems and jewels prettier than anything anyone on your island owns. It's obvious the people who once held court here were very important. Or, at the very least, very wealthy. As you might expect, this room is set up to be a test. There's a number of different ways this can work. They could decide to just start digging metals and jewels out of the wall herky-jerky. They could also decide that things seem to be too easy and just move on. There's also the real possibility that they've got a rogue or two in the group that decide that since things look too easy, there's probably traps involved, so they want to give things a look before they go to check things out. The truth is actually a double test. We've got traps all over the place. The metals and jewels are trapped. Any attempt to dig the metals or jewels out will trigger poison darts. The metals and gems are set into the pressure plates that set the darts loose, and it takes an intelligence investigation DC-15 check to recognize this. An intelligence investigation DC-15 check of the columns would also be a giveaway, since it would show the holes where the darts would be shot out of. It takes a rogue to disarm the trap, and they can do so with a straight dexterity check, However, if they're using their thieves tools, they get to add their proficiency bonus to that check. We'll call the DC to disarm it a 12, since the trap isn't intended to kill the group. Rather, it's intended to get them to leave the items alone. If we'd intended this to actually kill them, we'd set the DC to spot it a lot higher. If the group doesn't spot the trap or doesn't bother to look for it, the darts attack them. That means they get a ranged attack, which would be at a plus three bonus. That basically means whomever sets the trap off gets attacked by a dart. Roll a d20, add plus three to the number, and see if it hits. If it hits, the character takes one point of piercing damage and makes a DC 13 constitution saving throw. If they fail, they take three points of poison damage. If they succeed, they take a point of poison damage. Like I said, all we're trying to do is warn them off. If we wanted to kill them... 
we'd make this a lot more hazardous. And if we wanted to kill them, I'd have you actually rolling all this damage. For the sake of bookkeeping, we'll say there are five of these traps or one trap for each of your group members if you're not using five group members. This will equate to one gold, one silver, one platinum, and two gems. If you've got more group members, add gems. Once they've pulled their items out, if they've actually done that, they'll need to do an appraisal. The truth of the matter is that these are kids who have no idea whether or not they've got the genuine article, so they're going to assume they have it. <laughs> the actual truth of the matter is they don't. But have them write it on their character sheets that they do have the following and make sure you note in your notes who has what because when they get the chance to sell or use them later on, it's going to cause them some issues. 10 platinum pieces worth of raw platinum, 100 gold pieces worth of raw gold, 100 silver pieces worth of raw silver, one diamond, one ruby, and one of any other gem you're going to need to fill out your group. Like I said, you and I know these are fakes, but your group doesn't, so let them have your moment. And if you're using the XP system, we're not assigning XP yet, so hold off for the moment. Now, obviously, if the group chose to do nothing, we can forget all about this and just move on. So either way, we're moving on in the narrative and the next couple of lines can be skipped and you can move on to the part about doors. With your newly acquired loot in hand, you scan the room looking for doors to other rooms and potentially more riches to be found. Or at the very least, answers to Bree's dreams. You've been able to make out four doors and your mind races with the possibilities. Which door do you choose? Decisions. Decisions. This is where you pick up with the room they chose next. I am going to go counterclockwise, so we'll pick up with room two. The carvings on this door are more of that language that was on the entry doors. There aren't nearly as many of them, and they're in a small portion of the center of the door. It doesn't take much to realize that whatever they say, it was probably intended to label whatever this room was intended to be for. Testing the door, it's locked, and it's very well locked. This is where having a rogue comes in handy, which is why I always insist on having a rogue in my groups. This is the dexterity check again. However, anytime a group comes upon a locked door, they should get themselves in the habit of checking it for traps. Heck, my group's in the habit of checking any closed door for traps. I've dropped too many traps on them over the years for them not to. In fact, that was another reason for the lesson from room one. Don't just take things at face value. So, Let's hope they think of that and use Intelligence Investigation DC-15. Now, between you and me, there isn't anything on here, so if they make it, you can tell them that they know beyond a shadow of a doubt there isn't anything on there. If they miss it, well, you could tell them that they know beyond a shadow of a doubt there isn't anything on there. <laughs> I've done that before when they've rolled a one, but the problem with that is I've had characters who've had issues with metagaming, so that doesn't always work. Use whatever you think is going to work with the group you've got. If you change your methodology as you go along, you can keep them on their toes and they won't be able to figure out whether or not they've succeeded or failed on their roles. It's not intended to be trickery in so much as it's intended to play into the sense of suspense and increased role play. Once the trap issue has been settled, have the rogue make two rolls for the locks since there are two locks on here and the door can be opened. And we'll get back into the narrative. Whatever the words on the door said, they couldn't have said anything good. As soon as you get the door pulled open, the smell of death hits you in the face. 
Peeking in, you note an oil pot just inside the door on your left, and lighting it, you immediately notice where the smell came from. A half dozen rotten corpses that have somehow survived down here, chained to the walls. Five holes in the floor have small channels leading to the bodies, and closer examinations show dried blood rivers leading to the bodies. Evidence that they were killed for their blood, and it was drained and sent somewhere below. Figuring out who or what these individuals were will be impossible based on how decayed the bodies are, as well as what was done to them. And since I've always considered this to be a family show, I'm not going to go into details. This is one of those instances where I'll definitely leave the details to you. Go as light or as heavy as you want to. Deciding that discretion is the better part of valor, you decide to exit while you can still keep your breakfast where it is. So since we're going counterclockwise, we'll pick up at room three. Entering this room, you have the same feeling you had when you entered the complex initially, which puts you immediately on your toes. And when one of the first things you notice is a column, you begin to fan out and look for oil pots to light. Once you get enough of them lit, you realize this room is set up much like the previous one, only more extravagant. More metal, more gems, more bright paints, just more. There are even more columns here than there were in there. The only difference is that the only doors in this room lead back to the room you came from. But there is another difference here. The items in here aren't trapped. They'll figure that out if they check the columns and or the metal or gems. This should confuse them, but if they shrug it off and go to take anything, this will engage the first actual combat of the campaign. A homunculus for each member of the party emerges from the columns. Don't worry about having enough columns for this to make logical sense. They're tiny constructs, so they don't need a lot of space. Also, they're five hit point creatures that should be really easy for the party to take care of, so this shouldn't be much of an encounter. I put them here for a reason. Stats for them are on page 188 of the Monster Manual. As you work the precious items loose from their moorings, you hear something opening behind you. It only takes a moment to figure out where it's coming from. The columns must have had some sort of false panels you missed when you checked them, and tiny creatures emerge from them and attack you. Call the initiative order and run the combat. Again, these aren't the most powerful of creatures, and despite what's in the description, while these were sent to spy, they were also intended to be disposable since their creators also intend to test the combat abilities of the group. The other plan is to get the group to stop taking these precious metals and gems. Now, you and I both know these things aren't worth anything, but the players don't. If they want them, they can take them. And if they tank everything, double the amounts from the previous room. Once they're done here, that leaves us with room four, so let's set it up. Opening this door, you take a quick look to your left. And realizing this is a dead end, you make your way down the long, somewhat narrow hallway. The sounds coming from the end of it put the hairs on the back of your neck on end, but you don't see anything, which makes you more concerned. Finally, after what seems like an eternity, you come to a set of stairs heading down. And that's where we're going to stop the build for this week. Next week, we'll pick up here and take the group to level two. In the meantime, check out Role Playing History. This week, we're diving into Diplomacy. 
It's a game that most old school gamers cut their teeth on, and if you've never checked it out, you probably should. Role Playing History is available wherever you get your podcast or from our website, badgingandproductions.net. All Dungeons & Dragons materials utilized on this program are done so in accordance with the Open Game License 1.0a and System Reference Document from Wizards of the Coast and is done so for entertainment purposes only. For more information concerning the OGL and SRD, you can check out their website, dnd.wizards.com. The theme music for Bad GM's campaign build-along is Savage by Alex-Productions on sound.eu forward slash. Check out the info box for this episode for the full credits. Bad GM's campaign build-along is a production of Bad GM Productions. Hey, by now you know the drill. So check out the info box for this episode or the website to see where you can follow us and make sure you're following us so you get info like you did last week when I came up lame and had to call the show off. Huh, hate to do that. Next week, we check out level two of our complex and see what other kind of trouble we can get our group into, and we can see what this is all about. Until then, I'm the bad GM, Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the game table.